Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter uh, 15, but we'll be flipping around a little bit this evening. But uh, we find ourselves with a great tension in 2 Samuel. That great tension has been something that uh, pointed out somewhat, but there's two promises that somewhat... Uh, seem maybe a little bit um, unsure about how it's going to work out. The first is 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verse 12, where Nathan tells David uh, what God's going to do for him. Again, remember, David said, I want to build you a house. And Nathan said, go do what is in your heart to go build yourself a house. And then Nathan comes back and he gets a word from the Lord telling him, no, he's not going to build him He's not going to build me a house. I'm going to build him a house. And in verse 12 of chapter 7, Nathan says this to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So there's a promise that there's an offspring of David that's going to come, who's going to raise up his kingdom. And then the second Tension we find is in Second Samuel chapter twelve. After Bathsheba, the matter of Uriah the Hittite, and Nathan comes again. Uh, you are the man. And in verses ten and eleven, uh, Nathan tells David yet again a prophecy from the Lord. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. So on one hand, God says, I am going to establish uh, his kingdom. And then on the other hand, God says that he's good, the sword shall never depart from your house. And there's a person there, he shall lie with your wives. And there's this tension, the offspring of David who is to come, who God is going to raise up, who's going to have his kingdom established by God. And we know this is going to happen after David lies down with his father, after David has died. But we also know during David's lifetime that God is going to raise up evil from within his house. That his, the sword is going to come upon his house. Now the tension is, who is the he? Who is the he in the first place? Who is his kingdom? Who God is going to establish? It's going to come from David's offspring. We know this. We know it's going to happen after David is dead. We know this. But then the second question, who is the he that is going to lie down with David's wives? Where is this sword going to come from that comes up from within his house? The tension is found because up to this point, we do not know. If we think about the last chapters, it is Absalom who is now heir to the throne. He looks like a king, as we'll see. But who was going to be So you might assume that the one that is going to be established, his kingdom, is David's offspring, the heir, Absalom. But then, who is the one that is going to lie with his wives? 
Who is going to be the one that's going to bring the evil into the house? We maybe thought it might have been Amnon. Maybe it was Joab conspiring behind the king's back, getting the woman of Tekoa to come. Now, when you know the ending, it's hard to act surprised. When you know what is going to happen, it's hard to know what, where this tension is. We know, throughout, as we mentioned throughout 1 Samuel, we know David's going to be king. Any, anyone who's gone to any form of Sunday school knows what happens to David at the end of 1 Samuel. But we needed to live in that tension while we're going through that point. How did he become king? Because how he became king was very vital to how he rules as king. So we need to remember as we're reading through this, we do have the New Testament. We can see. We do know who that offspring is ultimately going to be. But there's this tension here in the unknownness of what is going through as we read 2 Samuel. Now, it's hard to do that, but I think it's something we need to understand. Who is the he going to be? Now, if we're going to look at it, we're going to assume that the he is two different people. Who will be the son that follows David? What type of king will he then be? How will his kingdom stay forever, be established forever? Who is the second he going to be? Who is going to be the one that rises up evil and lies with David's wives? Brings evil and the sword upon David's house. And I think chapter 15 is a critical point where we start to understand a little bit about what's going to happen. So let's look at chapter 15. First thing that we see is he looks like a king. 2 Samuel chapter 15 verse 1. After this, Absalom. Now, what does this after this mean? Now, it could be a comment about the last verse that we've just read in verse 33 of chapter 14, or it's the last chapters. If it's the, the section of chapters that go before this, it could mean the references that are referenced before chapter 7, chapter 12, big mountains, if you're going to look at the mountains of the mountain range of 2 Samuel. Maybe it's a little bit more specific about the timeline that we normally look up here. The timeline of events that have led to this moment in chapter 15. Amnon raping Tamar. Two years of not saying anything good or bad about Amnon as David the king does nothing. Then finally that famous sheep shearing party at Baal Hazor. And then three years after that of fleeing in Hebron, uh, in Geshur. And then now coming back to, to Jerusalem, but not allowed in the presence of the king. Waiting there two years, and then after the two years, then we find ourselves. So after this, after all of this has taken place, all of these dominoes, you might say. Now I think you can allude that there's always a backstory about what that after this means, but I think specifically it means verse 33. Joab the king went to Absalom, and he summoned him. So he came to the king and bowed himself to his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So here, you see all this leading up. 
the, the story that instigates it with Amnon and Tamar. Then you see the, the plotting, the scheming, the murder, the fleeing, the running, the coming back to Jerusalem, all of this up to this one point now where everything was as it is, as it was right before Amnon and Tamar, the incident there in chapter 13. So after this, the absolution of the king. Now it's, remember, it's, it's not his father. It is the king of Israel who is doing this. Now before we continue, I don't want to milk these two words But after this, but I want to ask a question. How do you show and respond to a person who shows you grace? Now Absalom, we've, as we've gone through this, we've, we've been able to sympathize with him. As we've mentioned, the king was there two years neglecting justice on Tamar's part. Didn't do what was correct by the law of God. Amnon got off scot-free, it appeared. What about Tamar? However, we can have a twisted perversion about what justice is. And sometimes we think the outcome of justice, as long as it's the same outcome, is still justice. But although the same outcome might be the end, it's not true justice if it hasn't gone through the process of justice. There's a great difference between a man having the death penalty after years of court cases, evidences brought against him, compared to the person, the complaintive coming and taking things into their own hands, subverting the justice system and just taking a life. And this is what Absalom did. One is administered by the justice system with process. The other is, is ultimately through emotion. The person who is, who is passing the judgment is one who is an emotionally fueled. And emotions are not good when it comes to justice. Emotions pervert justice. Now, there's good emotions that you can have, but often true emotion. That's why you have a justice system with a, a judge in the middle who hears two court cases, two cases before them. Now, we have divine evidence before us through the Holy Spirit. I think Amnon deserved the death penalty underneath the Mosaic laws we've looked at. However, it's the justice system that let Tamar down. But also we see the justice system somewhat fail Absalom too. That under the law, he deserved death as well. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So after this, we need to be reminded that, that Absalom has been pardoned by the king. He has been shown great grace. He should have deserved the death penalty. But he's been shown grace. How do you act? What do you do? Well, let's find out what Absalom did. After this, after he'd been shown much grace and mercy from the king for his actions, Absalom got himself a chariot. Got himself a chariot, some horses, 50 men to run before him. After he'd been shown all this grace, what does he do? 
picks up his checkbook, goes down to the local chariot dealer. I'm sure it wasn't a used chariot dealer. He went to the nice high-end ones with all the fixing trimmings, the big rims, the -the state-of-the-art sound system. Here are the latest psalms, I guess written by his dad. But not only he goes out and gets a chariot, he goes out and gets him some horses and 50 men to be able to go before him. Now, why is this important? Later in 1 Kings, another person does the exact same thing. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5, Adonijah, a son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now we need to remember, what does Absalom look like? In chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, there's no one as, as, as handsome as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was not a blemish on him. When he cut his hair, even his hair was two pounds after a year, growing for a year. 200 shekels by the king's weight. So after this, after he had been shown all this grace by the, his, his father, the king, he goes and gets a chariot. He, he establishes himself to look like a king. As he rides through Jerusalem with an army marching before him, a chariot and horses. So not only we have what, what the warning is in 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 5, We also have a warning that has happened before. Now remember what Samuel said when he was warning them about what kings would do. 1 Samuel chapter 8. The very first thing that Samuel warns them about what a king will do. When they ask for a king, well, what does Samuel warn them of in chapter 8 verse 11? He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, and he will appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. Exactly what a king would do, a a worldly king, a king like other nations, just as they had asked. This is not just a small action and a small comment about Absalom going and buying himself a chariot. It's not just some comment about him, him, him going out to be able to get from point A to point B. But as he's taken this grace, he now thinks of himself as a king and plans to be able to look like a king before everyone else. To be able to usurp the king who has shown him this grace. But he doesn't stop there. The second thing that we see is he starts taking shots at the king. In verses 2 to 4, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such or such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. 
Then every man in, with a dispute or a cause might call, come to me, and I would give him justice. Now with his new ride and, and his 50 men that marches before him, he comes and he places himself right in the center of the judicial system. The city gate was kind of like the town hall. The city gate was, was the courthouse. Remember when we were looking through um, the book in uh, Ruth. And Boaz goes early in the morning and where does he go? He goes to the city gates where all the elders would sit and judge and pass judgment. You've got to remember this is not merely just a small town where people would pass judgment. This was where they would come and see the, the judge, the king. This is where they would go to the Supreme Court. Where does Absalom find himself? He'd go there every day, standing there, stirring up trouble on the steps of their Supreme Court. And how does he treat the king, the king who had shown him grace? Well, he blames the king for the failed judicial system. See that he says, there is no man designated by the king to hear you. People would come to the, to the gates of Jerusalem to have their cases brought out before the king that he might be able to pass judgment just as the woman of Tekoa did. But Absalom, a smooth politician, would be able to twist anything to be able to have his to- talking points, his main points. Oh, Yes. You have a tremendous case. But, however, there's a gaping hole in our system. No one can hear you. Sorry. So the problem is the king. The king hasn't designated you a person. But as a good politician, he not only brings up what is wrong, he also has the perfect solution. And like a good politician, the perfect solution is not a program or a policy. The perfect solution is always the politician you want in that position. You want a person, and that person is me. In verse 4, he really highlights who he's trying to sell. Then Absalom would say when someone says, there's no one to hear you. Oh, that I were judge in the land. The emphasis in the Hebrew is, is on him. Who, who is he saying? Oh, if I was. If you had me as judge, we'd be able to hear your case. But then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. And I will give him justice. Absalom's solution is... He should be judged very plainly. However, we must be reminded. Absalom is standing here saying he should be judged to administer justice. However, he is the murderer who has been shown grace, who fled justice for three years. Now, there's a subtle theme that happens in First and Second Samuel. That is the subtle theme of sons and their positions. 
that no one is qualified for position just because their father held that position. And mainly, they're known for being the exact opposite of what they should be. Remember Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons? Worthless men, the, New King, the King James, scoundrels. And they were priests. And a priest was meant to be holy. All, all of Israel was meant to be holy, but the, the priests were meant to be set apart, consecrated for a holy work. But these priests didn't know the Lord. And what they did, instead of being holy, they, they stole from God the best portions of the offerings. What was meant to be offered to God, they ate for themselves. They even took it from force from other priests. Not only that, but they were taking women who were serving in the tent of meeting and sleeping with those female servants. There they were priests who were meant to be holy, but they acted in unholy ways. What about Joel and Abijah, Samuel's sons? They were set apart as judges in Beersheba. But just as bad as unholy priests is these judges who turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. So you have unholy priests and unjust judges. Now you have someone who seeks to be a judge who has no regard for the judicial system, so it seems, who did not follow the law. Not only that, he's not qualified, I do not believe, from the law itself. Exodus chapter 18, verse 21 spells out very clearly what the qualifications are, the biblical qualifications for someone who is going to hold the position of a judge. Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They need to be able, need to be able to fear God, who are trustworthy and don't take bribes. There are the four qualifications for a biblical judge. Now, if, from what we know of Absalom, you know, does he fear God? Now, a brief comment. Think about what happened to these sons, Hophni and Phinehas and Joel and Abijah. Eli's sons were no longer priests. Joel and Abijah, no longer judges. It looks like a king, he takes shots at the king, and lastly he acts like a king in verses 5 and 6. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom would not only be looking like a king as he's riding his chariot, taking shots of the king in the judicial process, but then he'd act like a king as well. Men would come and, and they would pay homage to him. Now, I mentioned this a couple of times last couple of weeks as we've studied. There's an interesting 
contrast in, in what happens in chapter 14. And I think the contrast is, is evident more now we're in chapter 15. Remember the woman of Tekoa. And she comes before King David in verse 4 of chapter 14. And she fell on her face and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. So she did two things. She comes before the king. She falls on her face and pays homage to the king. The second instance is Joab in 14 verse 22. He comes before the king. He falls on his face. He pays homage to him and blesses the king. So he does three things. He comes before the king, falls on his face, pays homage and blesses him. Now what does Absalom do in verse 33? He comes before the king and he bowed himself on the face to the ground before the king. Absalom did not pay homage to the king. Now I'm not sure if there's any cultural significance between how a son would greet a father. But I think the emphasis in chapter 14 is not that he is coming before his father, a father and a son. The emphasis is between someone coming before the judge, the king. As we pointed out, David is not mentioned in chapter 14. Quite a different approach from the prodigal son. who said, I, I'm going to come and be a servant. But now, in verse 5 of chapter 15, a man would come before Absalom and pay homage to him. And he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. You might not think it is a must, but here they're paying Absalom. Absalom doesn't pay homage to the king, but he, he has people paying homage to him. And you might not think that it's, it's Absalom's fault. If someone comes down and pays homage to the, him, then, but I'm sure there's more to it. He then puts out his hand so they might be able to kiss him. He doesn't say, please don't do that. I'm not the king. My father is the king. You need to pay homage to him. He holds out his hand. Kiss the son. But it doesn't just stop there as well. In verse 6, Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. You see, people are coming to Absalom instead of coming to the king. See, he's trying to take the position of the king. Stand in his place. Now we need to remember that throughout this passage, the king is a very important title. Again, it doesn't mention David, King David. It's always the king. And they stand before Absalom, who looks like a king with his chariots and his 50 men around him. At the gate where the king would normally pass judgment, complaining about the current king, making them kiss his hand, as they pay homage to him as a king. But in all of this, we see it's working. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. See, there's a contrast here that the men come to Absalom for judgment, as they would come to the king, and they leave with Absalom taking their hearts. And this word stole is quite an appropriate word here. To, to steal is to take something that is not yours. 
It's the exact same Hebrew word in the, in the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. It's not only that you shall not steal, it's also the word which is used of tricked. Of Jacob tricking Laban by not telling him that he intended to flee. And then Genesis 31, verse 26 and verse 27. And Absalom said to Jacob, Jacob, what have you done? You have tricked me, the same word there for stole, and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me? And did not tell me that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and lyre. That he, he is sitting here and what he is doing is he's stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. Not just one, not just another, not just one or two, but the whole men of Israel have their hearts stolen. And this is an important thing because what happens in verse 13? When the messenger comes to David, as we'll look at next week and then the following week, the messenger comes to David and says, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. That here you see him planting those seeds of slowly stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. This is the message, message that David gets. Now we ask the question, who is he? We might have had different answers before chapter 15. We still don't know specifically who's the offspring that's going to follow David. Who is the one who's going to bring evil on the house? And you start to ask the question, could they be the same person? Could it be Absalom? But let us then ask the question, what does that mean for us today? Now often I think it's a hard thing to be able to go through narrative and and to try and find application where you're not just taking a one-to-one correlation, reading narrative and, and forcing application. And often I think what you have is, is a similar application, but they're important. I think the first thing that we need to think about is the desire to have an office, a position or an office, is not enough. First Timothy chapter 3 begins... And says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. And sometimes we just think if they're willing, then let's let them be in that position. But Absalom is a person who has great desire. But he's also willing to steal what is not his. And think about this contrast to David. What did David do in a similar situation? He's anointed by Samuel. Samuel has has never seemed to put a foot wrong. Maybe you might be able to say that he didn't uh, train up his children in the fear of the Lord. We don't know that for sure. But often you look at Samuel and look at his ministry. He's known for being a prophet in Israel, been established by God. And here David has been anointed by Samuel, told specifically that you will be king. But yet, what does he do? He doesn't try and force his way in there. He was patient. He waited. He didn't even raise his hand against Saul when he had the opportunity. But Absalom is quite different. 
And this is why I think character is such a vital part of officers in the church. That, that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 begins with those who desire an office, desire a noble task. But it doesn't stop there. It goes through with qualification after qualification. This is why examination is important in the process. We need to be careful about saying they look like a deacon, they, they, they look like an elder, they, they act like a pastor. That the people love them. You need to be careful about those things. Because ultimately it's, it's the desire underneath it. You want them to be able to say, like Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What would it look like if all the, all the church imitated them? So I think it teaches us about officers. I think the second thing it teaches us about is, is always a personal heart check. A check that reflects on ourselves. How do we respond when our king has shown us grace? Again, you see this David versus Absalom. David, when he's confronted with sin, his response Psalm, uh, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. David writes Psalm 51, Absalom goes and gets 50 men to run before him. Grace should never move us to that position of arrogance or pride. Grace to Absalom made others bow down and paid homage before him. But in fact, grace should make us bow down on our knees and pay homage to the one who has shown us grace. Paul in Ephesians 2, the famous verse, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, that we should walk in them. If the gospel message leads to boasting, even if that boasting is, look at how much sin God has forgiven me of. The center is then around you, not on the grace shown to you. You have the wrong gospel message. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31 in chapter 1. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but, by give, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. That the gospel message needs to drive us to this posture of praise. And if the posture of praise is not about receiving praise, it's about giving praise to God. But I think the last point that we can apply to our lives this is always one of my points in, in 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel. We need to thank God for Christ. Who is the He that He established the kingdom forever with? We need to thank God it was not Absalom. We need to thank God it was not Amnon. We need to thank God that it was not David, and even it was not through Solomon. 
That you want the, the person who sits on your throne forever to be sinless and spotless. Or else you would just have this vicious cycle that would always end in a sinful king and the discipline of the Lord coming down, the questioning of whether it would last forever. But this posture of praise, of this praise towards God, that His throne will remain forever. His sinless, spotless judgments that no one can question. His judgments are perfect. He understands the law. He applies the law perfectly. But there is no hope if Absalom is he, the one who is he, his kingdom. Imagine if, if it was. How depressing Psalm 110 would be. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends for earth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The vindictive Absalom. Verses 5 and 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will scatter chiefs over the whole world, earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. How different it would be if, if Absalom was the he. Or kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. There is no blessing in taking the refuge in Absalom. And First and Second Samuel it should drive us to be able to thank God for Christ. Thank God that it is, it is David's son and not David who sits on his throne forever. And it's not David's son Amnon, it's not David's son Absalom, not David's son Solomon, but it's David's son, Christ. And we are only at the beginning. Verse 6 of this story of Absalom and his rise and his fall. We've got much more to go, but as we often say, tune in next week. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.